How many of you are a little tired today because of daylight savings time? Yeah, it feels like three in the morning to me right now. Doesn't it to you? I might just fall asleep up here. But I think of any, any series, I, I didn't mean for it to be this way. I wish I could claim credit. But we are starting a series on Revelation. So if there was ever a night where if it's hard for you to stay awake on a series on Revelation, then, uh, man, um, I don't know what to tell you. But... You know, as I researched this, uh, do you know that Revelation is the book that congregations want to hear taught from the most, and that it's also the one that pastors want to teach from the least? You know why, don't you? It's very intimidating, and I put myself in that same category. This is the first time that I've done uh, a, that I've taught through Revelation, at least at this level of of depth, and I am intimidated, to be sure. Uh, And that's after taking a class on Revelation, studying it thoroughly, a seminary class, writing three 20-page papers on various topics within Revelation. And let me just say, man, the the more you dig into Revelation, especially the details, there's a depth there, and there is a diversity of viewpoints within the body that all are considered orthodox, solid viewpoints. So we have to have a lot of humility jumping into this this book. Um, But the main message is... This, this is an anchor of hope for those who are suffering. This letter is an anchor of hope for those who are suffering for their faith and its motivation to share the gospel with those who don't know him while there's still time. Um, so let's jump right into the overall purpose, purpose of this letter contained in the first two verses. It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we need your help as we discern even the most simple parts of scripture. We especially need your help here. Lord, help us to learn what this book said to the original audience, Lord, and in turn, what it says to us. And Lord, may it be an anchor for our souls through all the suffering that that we have faced and will face. Lord, we know in the end, All the suffering we face will be as if it were nothing compared to the ever-surpassing glory of our King. Thank you, Lord, that you win. You win. In Jesus' name, amen. So God gave, gave a revelation that Jesus in turn gave to an angel that in turn gave it to John. John's living in exile Uh, on the island of Patmos, which is very beautiful now, if you look it up, but not so much then, okay? It was not, don't think, you know, uh, all-inclusive Sandals Resort. Think Alcatraz. You know, it was an island built for prison, and tradition tells us that he was dipped in boiling water during some time within imprisonment. So this man was suffering and had lost it all for his faith, This message from the angel to John and then was pinned to Christ's servants who were the seven churches. These seven churches were both literal and figurative churches. They were were literal churches, but they were also figurative in the sense that each of the seven churches represents a different level of health of church. Some were very healthy and some had all kinds of sin and dysfunction. So it represents the capital C church. That is every church. So it's written to every church. Um, John was to give testimony to what he saw, according to verse 2. That is, what he saw was a vision of judgment for those who reject Christ 
and a vision of rescue and salvation for those who follow him and love him. Um, This is the same John who is a disciple of Christ and wrote the letters entitled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, in our Bibles. And he would have been elderly, living on this island, and had gone through unspeakable punishment for Jesus Christ. So we see this warning, and the warnings like what we read about in Revelation all through the Scripture, all through the Old Testament. So I want to rewind a few hundred years in redemptive history back to Amos. And we're going to read Amos 3, 6 through 7 as an example of coming judgment, this warning of coming judgment. It says in Amos 3, verse 6, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. This is a major theme in God's story, the Bible, where there is a message of coming judgment in response to the disobedience of God's people. And it happened many, many times as you read the Old Testament. So there was a, a, a promise for obedience, a promise of blessing, and a promise of curse for disobedience. And then uh, the people would come back to their senses and they would start following God again. Then they would rebel. God would promise judgment. He'd give them warning after warning after warning. Then judgment would come. I'm talking cities would be completely annihilated, people killed, uh, uh, scorched earth type of scenario. And then there would be a remnant that remained faithful and held out a glimmer of hope for God to restore things once again and then you know, repeat, repeat, repeat over and over throughout redemptive history. Revelation is similar in that it gives a painfully clear picture of coming judgment for those who fail to receive the rescue of Christ and salvation for those who pursue him and love him. Uh, But it's different than any other piece of God's story because it's the last judgment and it's the final window for those who don't know Jesus to receive him. When the predictions uh, come to fruition that we read about in this letter Uh, When those are completed, there will be no hope for those who are far from Christ. So isn't it a grace? Isn't it a tremendous grace that we get this warning in such detail? Wasn't that compassionate of God? He didn't have to do that. Both to encourage us as believers to share Christ with others and encourage those who are far from them that, hey, sin is a big deal. It's why I died on the cross. Receive my rescue while there's still time. Jesus is seen as a prophet and priest through all of Scripture, but he's also a king, and that's never more clear than Revelation. He's depicted as a king who brings salvation and judgment. He was gentle and riding on a donkey as he made his way to the cross, as we read about in the Gospels. But he'll be a triumphant, blood-soaked warrior to those who reject him in Revelation. We get a picture of Jesus that many of you have never seen, but he's been there from the beginning, and the judgment that God promised throughout Scripture was a glimmer of what we see in vivid detail in Revelation, and it's a grace. It's an absolute grace. Sin is a huge deal. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for it. And there will come a time when that extension of God's grace will end. We see desperate language used here to get our attention. In chapter 1, verse 1, the first part, it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place. This word soon in the original language is a desperate word. 
the way it's used here. And what it means is it's gonna happen suddenly without notice and you won't be able to react to it. Like if one of you were to take a baseball right now and throw it at me as hard as you could, you know. I mean, I'd be able to react because I've got skills. Uh, but no, I used to, not anymore. I can't even give my kids batting practice anymore without fearing for my life. My fast twitch muscles died long ago. Uh, but you get my point, where you won't even be able to react. It's gonna happen quickly. This unraveling of the earth, this day of the Lord we read about throughout the Bible will be terrifying, as our other pastor Kimberly, Kimball so clearly described during his series on the day of the Lord some time ago. Kimberly. <laughs> Kimball's and bit. Kimball's and bits. I actually like that better. I'm gonna start calling him that. Uh, so we're to have a, a, a specific response to this fiercely urgent message. And here it is. In Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what's written in it, because the time is near. It's the, it's the only book of the Bible where there's a promise for hearing it and taking it to heart. It says hear it because... Uh, uh, these letters were passed on orally to the various churches because not many could read. And so you could also substitute read it for that as well and take it to heart. That is, it should become a lifestyle for us. And there's a blessing in reading it and understanding it. Not every painstaking little detail, not that, but understanding the overall theme that God has provided this clear picture of judgment for sin and rescue for those who know and love them, and we need to preach the gospel while there's still time and remain obedient even unto death. Um, this book is also super key as a follow-up to Kimball's series on Jude because it helps us do, deal with the unsettling reality of false teachers that we read about in the context of Jude and discussed by way of application uh, in our city and in our world. That is, there are people who claim to be Christians in churches that are actually drawing people away from Jesus. There are even pastors in so-called churches who are teaching that Jesus is just an idea and that all roads lead to God. And they stay away from issues like judgment and a biblical sexuality and Jesus as the only way to salvation and, and all the other difficult to hear messages of the gospel. They neuter the gospel. And those are, uh, many of those are very combative towards Christians and even lead ones away from Christ. I unfortunately have seen dear friends led away by such people. And society is more combative towards Christianity than any other time in history outside of the church. So we face opposition inside the church just as they did here and outside the church just as they did as well. This antagonistic response from culture has, has caused believers in our churches in America today to shy away from sharing their faith. How many of you are more afraid to share your faith today than maybe you were five years ago? Because you'll appear, I mean, some of you are even raising your hands, good for you. I'm raising my hand. I'm really battling this and repenting of it. Because it used to be back when I was in high school, I actually became more popular when I received Christ. Because there was a Judeo-Christian ethic in society and I, as I became more kind and less of a jerk and reached out to others and stood for something, I actually became more popular uh, was probably one of the most popular kids in the school at, after I received Christ. I definitely wasn't what before, but my compassion was granted, was, uh, was seen as a, uh, 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 a noble pursuit, even if they disagreed with my faith. Now, you're viewed as a racist. You're viewed as a sexist. You're viewed as dangerous 
even in some circles, to follow Christ. We've stopped sharing the gospel with those at the office, around Thanksgiving meal, with family, and at our schools. That's why revelation is so key and timely for us to study. Learning how to persevere in the midst of adversity, fearing God more than the acceptance of man. Those themes are all through this book. We have the power to obey, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, because of who this book, this letter, is from. There's some key froms that I want to look at here. And we need this power because this is, these are the most severe, sobering exhortations in the entire Bible for believers and for the church. I mean, they are intense. This is a heavy book. Uh, So pray for me and pray for us as we seek to walk it out. Listen to this, these froms. Revelation 1, 4 through 7. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the king of kings. So we see the powerful arsenal of the Trinity as our side as we seek to obey even unto death if necessary the commands of this book. He who is and who was and who is to come refers to God. The seven spirits before the throne, seven represents a perfect number, uh, almost certainly represents the Holy Spirit, according to just about every commentator that I read. And of course, we see it's also from Jesus Christ. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit empowering us to walk out the commands of this book. We can finish strong with, with him who is victorious. He was the first to rise from the dead on Easter Sunday. And he who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, even when all hell literally, literally breaks out on this earth, which we'll read about, he can help us persevere to the end. As we interpret this apocalyptic book, I'll also say we must, not, we must be careful not to be ensnared by the interpretive trap that attempts to speculate about symbols that are unclear, trying to take current or relatively recent historical events and project them onto the text. Christians have fought over this book for hundreds of years, wasting their energy when our real fight is to obey Christ and warn the world that Jesus is coming back. We ought not to waste our time trying to argue that the the wasp depicted in this book, the size of horses, are describing fully armed Apache helicopters, as uh, I've heard some say. That might be what it is, but to argue that and what it is, I mean, we don't want to get into all that. Here's an example of a disagreement that's caused division among some believers. I'm going to share this just once. You won't hear me refer back to it. But it's uh, the various views of the millennium. That is the 1,000-year peaceful reign of Christ on this earth. Some think it's literal, some figurative, uh, depending on your perspective. So the, and it's discussed in chapter 20. The premillennial view holds that Jesus will return and immediately enact this peaceful 1,000-year reign. The post-millennialist believes that the millennium is an era, not a literal thousand years, during which Christ will reign over the earth, not from a literal and earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives. After this gradual Christianization of the world, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. This is called post-millennialism because by this view, Christ will return after this thousand-year reign. 
The or figurative thousand-year reign. The amillennialists believe that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, at which point he gained victory over both Satan and the curse. So it's already happened. And Christ is even now reigning at the right hand of the Father over his church. After this present age has ended, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked according to this view. And there are even slightly varying views within each of these camps. I mean, it breaks into, <laughs> it is dizzying to say the least. Um, now I've studied all of these in depth and I've written papers on these and have, have had to defend them. Uh, and you know what? All of them can be very convincing. All of them can be, defended, uh, can be defended by scripture. And I had to choose a view and basically I was kind of just guessing. I mean, because each one I would read and, and study, it was, okay, I can see that. The next one, I can see that. The next one, I can see that, all of them in scripture. So we want to have convictions as we read this book, but we don't want to be divisive. Um, now, you guys remember the difference between closed-handed issues and open-handed issues? We've talked about that quite a bit on Sunday nights. So if you've been here longer than a few years and you don't know what I'm talking about, you're simply not listening, ever. So uh, let that be a challenge to you. Uh, so, for example, Jesus is Lord and sovereign. That's a closed-handed issue, right? Jesus is coming back. That's a closed-handed issue. Jesus wins and his followers will be victorious who persevere until the end. Closed-handed issue. There will be a final and forever judgment and salvation. Close-handed issue. Baseball is the best sport there is. Close-handed issue. <laughs> um, the views on the millennium. Open-handed issue. The symbolic or literal nature of the various beasts and what have you. Open-handed issue. Having said that, if you've studied this book, you and I will probably disagree at one point or another. And that's okay because you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's okay, because if you lined up every pastor in the world, probably no two would have the exact same views on every topic that comes up in this book. So we're not gonna do a deep dive. We're gonna look at, at mainly the broad themes, but we need to remember the point of the letter. Christ followers are being persecuted. They're being beheaded and crucified by both Jews and Rome. They face relentless pressure to worship the Roman emperor or face the loss of employment family, life, and limb. We must firmly and courageously stand in their shoes as we read this letter because one day it might be us who can't sit around in comfortable churches and coffee shops and homes debating the various symbolic meanings of revelation. But it could be us who hear the echoes of our children scream as we sit in the squalor of our prison cell remembering that we've been taken from them. It could be us who experience the uh, uh, unbelievable, horrendous crimes that the early church faced where they were being burned at the stake, boiled alive, wives raped, and husbands taken away from their families. They wanted to know, how can I endure such suffering? Is it worth it? What about these false teachers? And will this wickedness that is literally taking everything from me, will it have the last word? This book is brutal, brutal in its depiction of the power 
the grace and the terrifying reality that will be upon this earth when Jesus comes back. Revelation says, take heart, persevere, because Jesus reigns and will one day come back to consecrate his throne on earth and will wipe away every tear. It says, keep declaring the good news that Jesus offers free forgiveness, salvation, and true and lasting hope and love to all who call upon his name, and also the message that the terrifying wrath of God is coming soon and is inescapable regardless of creed, color, or status. These brothers and sisters and all who call Jesus Lord are called to be faithful, to pursue holiness in an ever-increasing seductive culture, to be filled with promise of blessing for faithfulness, not speculating about future events involving the Lord's return, to put away the charts outlining end times events. I know some churches and pastors do that. We, We don't do that. And warn one another, if necessary, not to fall away, but to walk in the Spirit and to share the gospel in season and out of season, no matter what. This letter is not just to, uh, it's not just written to, to believers as encouragement to remain faithful, and it's not just written to non-believers who to receive uh, the messages for them to receive Christ's mercy while there's still time. It's also written to believers similar to Jude who had fallen away and who had been deceived. This book was written to throw gasoline on the fires of the gospel in the church so that it may go out and save others with this message while there's still time. It's difficult to interpret, but it's crystal clear in its message, and that's this. You may have everything stripped away from you, house, job, family, shelter, friends, and even your life, but you have the risen and victorious Christ, and that is more than enough for us, brothers and sisters. We see this demonstrated in many ways throughout the letter. And in our section tonight, we see that Jesus is enough for two reasons. First, because there's substance to our suffering. There's substance to our suffering. In other words, the suffering of the saints written to here and throughout time are not suffering in vain. That's always the fear for suffering believers to be sure. But Christ followers don't need to be debilitated by the question Why do Christ's followers suffer for their faith? And we do have that question. It makes sense, don't we? Doesn't it? I mean, typically, we sacrifice to avoid suffering, don't we? Work hard so you can eat and have shelter. Work hard at a relationship even when it's difficult so that you're not lonely. But Christ's followers throughout time have sacrificed much to begin following Christ only to find that the closer they get to him, the more they suffer. I know some of you would say amen to that tonight. I know the suffering of many of you. There's good reason for this suffering. Not one ounce of suffering on the pathway to obedience is wasted. It's like gold refined in the fire, Scripture tells us. And I am glad that it's harder to be a Christian now than the other time in our country's history. Because we can no longer rely on all the fringe benefits that Christianity gives us. It makes us nicer so we get more friends. It gives us a moral compass so we don't make as many mistakes. No, now we are seen as foolish. And there's one group that it's open season on, and that is believers who believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. It is the one group that every other group is allowed to make fun at, make fun of, and marginalize. Because the beautiful reality is that we portray the suffering of our Lord who was beaten and bruised for us. And when we suffer, 
our testimony, our witness is more effective and transformational than when we enjoy health and comfort, is it not? We offer the greatest eternal treasures to others when our earthly ones have been stripped away so that the refined gold of the gospel can be seen in our lives and enjoyed. My most impactful times for Christ have been by far the times when I've had the least to offer, the times where I've had nothing to offer. And these brothers and sisters that we read about in this letter whose uh, uh, bellies were, were screaming out in hunger as they had no way to feed their family because they had no job, because they had no social networking, because they had been oppressed by the Romans and marginalized and cast aside by the Jews. Some, you've probably heard this cliche before, but we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until he's all we have. The very letter we're reading has been read by countless millions and was penned by an old man exiled and abused for his faith. He had nothing in this life as it had all been taken away, but he had abundant and eternal life to offer others as a result because of his suffering. We see that this testimony through suffering is part of God's plan in this book. We see it all over Revelation. So I'm going to read just a few examples now. We'll get into the details of these passages in weeks to come, but I at least wanted you to get a taste. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Why does God allow suffering? Because it is a mirror of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ as we suffer to his glory, for his glory's sake. I don't care if it's a mild depression because you're obeying the Lord and it's cost you a romantic relationship or you have a gun to your head. There is something sacred and beautiful when we suffer for Christ that allows people to walk right up to the foot of the cross, see the broken and bloody, uh, risen sick, uh, broken body of Jesus and bow their knee to him in repentance and salvation. It goes in Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast that they're t about their testimony about Jesus. So God allowed spiritual forces of evil to wage war on God's saints. He allows it. Why? Again, so that the cross of Christ can be seen. Revelation 24, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their, hand, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Obviously, we can't exposit the meaning of each of these passages tonight, but I bring them up to show the immense value our Savior and King places on our suffering for his namesake. I'm not talking about suffering for sin. I'm not talking about suffering, you know, your grandmother dies or whatever, that, that's, or, or, or your brother dies. Those are, are very painful things. What's spoken of here is, is specifically persecution. Persecution for following Jesus Christ. I'm sure you see the honor God places on his servants who are persecuted for him. 
These early believers needed to know that their suffering was not in vain, that God noticed and cared, and that he was using it to advance his kingdom and bring glory to his name. And we should take note of the fiery trials that our brothers and sisters are facing around the world today. It's not as if persecution has gotten any better. Persecution and martyrdom for Christ is worse than it's ever been, just not here. You know, we have 25 plus young people that now are strategically walking towards a call to missions to the Middle East. Some will, and they're going to conferences, they're going to prayer times. We have our missions board right back there that Sarah Hertzler has helped us uh, get together. And people are going to prayer times, they're going to conferences unto that end, and many are actively engaged with, with Muslims in this country now. And many of them wanna go to places that are very dangerous. This is real. This book has never been more applicable to the church than it is today. It's just maybe a little bit more difficult for us to apply it in our relative wealth and ease, but I believe that that's coming to an end, brothers and sisters. Even in the midst of persecution, even if it cost us our lives, finances, friends, and family, we're still commanded to proclaim the gospel regardless of the cost. So we must, around the Thanksgiving table, even if our family thinks we're weird, we should share at the office or the school, even if we're treated differently or viewed as ignorant. Sharing the gospel is no less of a command, I might add, than do not steal or do not commit adultery or love one another. Yet we feel the liberty to omit this commandment that was such a strong one the Lord gave us if we face even the least amount of discomfort. We have a sobering call here to obey even unto death. And even if we die for him, it's gain because we'll be with him. And when we see him in all of his glory, our suffering, no matter how severe, will seem as if it is nothing. This analogy breaks down. It doesn't even come close, but it's the best one I could come up with. If I were to be walking along the street and see a duffel bag, a huge duffel bag, like hockey gear sized duffel bag, and it is stuffed with $100 bills, millions of dollars, and on it it says, Chris Hold, from whoever, somebody who I know didn't steal it, you know, so to calm all your consciences of those of you who are very literal in your thinking. And so I go and I pick up the bag and it's inconvenient and it's heavy, right? Will the momentary suffering and sacrifice that I experience hold a candle to the glory of my newfound wealth? It'll be as if, it'll be as if it's nothing when I put that sucker in the bank, right? That doesn't even come close to the glory that we'll see when we see him face to face. So if you're suffering right now with physical health issues and you are tempted to give up and chuck the faith because maybe the messages you hear out in culture know that your suffering is not in vain. If you're going through depression and you're looking to other things to uh, uh, deal with your pain instead of Jesus, know that your suffering is not in vain. And did you pay attention to that last example of suffering I shared from Revelation 20, verse four? It says that these saints will reign with Christ and so will we. We died with him. One day we'll, we'll, we'll get our new bodies and we've already been risen with Christ spiritually. One day we'll be risen with him physically and we'll reign with him. We'll reign with him. Believers all over the world and the saints written to here were given confidence to endure until the end. Christ is enough regardless of what we might lose.
We gain him, and that's more than adequate, not just because there's substance to our suffering, but also because Jesus is glorious. And this is my favorite part of the message tonight. It might be yours. Adversity is easy to overcome in the face of opposition when it's facing a glorious opponent, isn't it? Like next week when OSU plays Maryland, the glory of OSU football is going to overwhelm Maryland, right? It'll be as if Maryland is nothing. Um, We see this when we listen to beautiful music or enjoy glorious art. All, All the pressures of life and worries of today melt away in the face of such splendor. But these examples don't even belong in the same universe as the glory of Jesus. And we see it in, more, in such clarity in detail in this book, more so than any other book of the Bible. When we look at his glorious face, all opposition will bow. And that's what makes Christianity unique. You know that? From every other religion, it's not just about managing our sin so that we can have some sense of morality and control over our life. It's about dropping to our knees and worshiping Jesus and looking at him. Not looking at our sin, not looking at all the trouble we see around us, no matter how tough it might be, but looking at the glory of Christ. And you know, I think that may be why churches are so hesitant to teach this book. I think it could be the spiritual forces of evil resisting us because focusing on the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ Therein lies our victory. If it was enough for these suffering saints in this, that face unbelievable persecution, it's enough for us, isn't it? So here we go, Revelation 1.11. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, this is John speaking, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John was given a vision from God of the Lord's day or referred to elsewhere in scripture as the day of the Lord. John received a vision of what the return of Christ would look like and the first thing God shares is a picture of his glorious son. Isn't that awesome? The very first thing. So that means the foundation of our lives and the first step in this path of suffering on the way to obeying Christ is to look at the glory of Christ. And this is what he sees. Chapter one, verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his face. So we see Jesus here is pictured as a man. It says someone like a son of man. He was fully man. He was also fully God because we see the language of royalty here. He was dressed in a robe and he had a golden sash around his chest. We also see that Jesus is God in Revelation 1.8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God uses this title of himself often in Scripture, but we know that Jesus is referring to his own divinity here because of the previous verse that's clearly referring to Jesus' return, and then verse 8 starts with a personal description. So Jesus is describing, you can read it right now if you want to, To clarify, so Jesus describes himself as God. We also see as we continue to look at the picture of Jesus, the same exact language that Daniel used hundreds of years earlier, prophetically describing John's vision in Daniel chapter 7 and 10. If you really want to understand Revelation, uh, you want to get greater clarity, I'm going to give you two more easy books to read. 
Daniel and Ezekiel. <laughs> Have fun with those. No, they are. They're wonderful, but they are not a light reading. Revelation 1.14. So this is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. The hair on his head, talking about Jesus, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, the sun shining in all of its brilliance. So his hair was white like wool in snow. That's a picture of wisdom. You see, even if the world calls us foolish, there is nothing more intellectually satisfying and edifying and wise to meditate on and to communicate with others than Jesus Christ. He is the very epicenter of wisdom. He is wisdom. He is not just wise. He is wisdom, and that's how he's depicted here. Because I'm sure that these folks who received this letter or heard this letter were tempted to think, I'm just an idiot. I'm, I'm a dumb dirt farmer and I'm around all these intelligent Romans who are sharing all these great ideas and look at all these great things they've invented, all these buildings and whatnot, roads and everything else. Maybe I'm the idiot. Have you felt that way? Yes, you have. You have. And so have I. But the king that we worship is wisdom itself. Along the same lines, his eyes are described as blazing fire, which means he sees it all. That's the, the symbol there. He sees it all. So he sees the wickedness that the original audience was, was being influenced by and being persecuted by. He sees it all. None of it, none of it can escape his gaze. And he sees our hearts. He knows everything about us, our darkest secrets, and still extends to us his mercy in his grace. There's no discovery, invention, or scheme of man that he didn't know about from before creation. So he's not, his head is not in the clouds. He sees their suffering. He knew it was going to happen. He's going to complete the work that he started in them and in us, and his glory is at stake. So we don't need to be overly impressed or intimidated by the brilliance of man. Verse 15 goes on to say, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, depicting the overwhelming purity of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't change like shifting shadows. The Jews might try to push these folks to the side. The Romans might try to cut them down with the sword. But Jesus isn't gonna change. He's not gonna deceive them or us. Have I bought into a lie? Have I been deceived? No, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. He's pure and he's trustworthy. You see, they, these people did not need to know. In some cases, it's enough to know that Jesus understands our suffering. But that only goes so far when your kids have been kidnapped, when your wife has been killed. Then you need to know that this king you're following, that you're literally giving your life for, is enough. And that he's going to be victorious, that he's going to win. Folks, he's going to win. Whatever you're going through, he wins, and he's worth following unto our last breath. It says, his voice resounds with authority. Or sorry, yeah, it says his voice resounds with authority. It says in the same verse, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters 
Can you imagine this sound? Other translations, in my opinion, make this a little more clear by saying it was like mighty crushing waves. You know, I've never been to a tropical paradise. If one of you wants to pay for me to vacation there, I will graciously receive it and bless you with receiving that. Uh, but I've been to Florida, and the waves there are real tiny, you know. But for some of you been to places like Hawaii, you've told me, and I've lived vicariously through you, that the waves are super high in places, and the sound is just overwhelming when you're in them. What the Lord says is final. And when he returns, his voice will not be the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit anymore, but the deafening voice of an enraged king coming to finally and forever rescue his people from sin and death by destroying sin and all who still live in it. There's no way for me to soften this book, folks. That's the message. And then in verse 16, Jesus is the final and ultimate judge. It says that Jesus held in his right hand the seven stars, and verse 20 tells us the seven stars is referring to the angels or messengers of the church. So the fact that he held them in his right hand shows that he's the judge and the authority of the church. Because remember, part of the message is to Christians who have fallen away, like Jude in our last series, that he will judge the church, that those who claim to be Christians but who aren't will be found out and judged. Speaking of judge, we also see that he has a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This type of sword in the original languages, we see that it was uh, the, the sword that the Romans used, and it's uh, referred to five times in Revelation. And it was used by the Romans in a stabbing action designed to kill. So Jesus was no longer a baby in Bethlehem or a man of sorrows crowned with thorns. He is now the Lord of glory. He will not resemble the baby in the manger here. So these early churches could rest assured that the Romans may use their swords to take their lives, but Jesus was in full control and would have the last word as the final and ultimate authority and judge. And I love what happens next. Here. After John describes Jesus' face radiating with light like the sun, the, the, the one who created the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the planets, the father of lights, would have been intimidating to say the least. And John simply can't take it. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, get out the depends. You know, uh, uh, give me a nurse because I need someone to resuscitate me. I have literally been scared to death. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. Now, keep in mind, in the Gospels, in John 13, this same John was the same one who laid his head upon Jesus' breast in comfort. And here, he can't handle the glory of Christ. The day of the Lord, that is the return of Christ, will be glorious, but also terrifying. Jesus says, though, to those who know him, love him, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. He is the Lord of creation. The world was created by Jesus, and he will be the one who will bring an end to the present created order in order to restore it fully as it was before sin entered the world. Jesus goes on to explain who he is in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Both the Christian's death and the Christian's resurrection are in the hands of Jesus. John can trust the Lord, even though he's terrified in this scenario, and so can we, because Jesus was the firstborn from the, among the dead, meaning he was the first one to rise from the dead, and we'll follow him in our resurrection one day. Jesus is in control of 
every aspect of our lives, including the exact moment when we'll take our last breath. He's alive forever and his life can never be taken from him. And John's readers and hearers who love Jesus today can never have their lives taken from them as well. Jesus also holds the keys of death in Hades. That means he controls the eternal destiny of every human being who will ever live. If you're not sure that you know Jesus tonight, I say this as a compassionate plea. Don't trust in your works to be right with God. You could literally be the nicest person to ever walk the face of the earth, and it will not be enough when you stand before this judge that we're reading about. All that will matter will be how you respond to Jesus Christ. Is he your king? Have you asked him to rescue you from your sin and to give you new life? If not, this book should terrify you. He's coming back like a thief in the night, and we don't know when he's coming. And he loves you. He died on the cross to rescue you from your sin, and all you have to do is call on his name. Jesus, rescue me from my sin. I've tried to do it on my own. I've tried many ways to make this life work but I want to turn my life over to you. I want you to live your life through me. And I'll lead us in a prayer in just a few moments. But you can call on him. It's a prayer that a five-year-old, it's simple enough. Receiving Christ is simple enough for a five-year-old to do, but the pride of 50-year-olds keeps them away. Tonight, will you bend your knee? Also, for those who are in rebellion against God but believe they're Christians, I ask, are you sure? Are you sure you know him? Because in Matthew 24, 13, it says that we must endure till the end to be saved. So that doesn't mean we're saved by works, but it does mean that those who are truly saved walk out the good works of Christ because of his supernatural aid. So I ask again, do you really know him? Or are you playing games? Are you just coming to church and going to meetings? But your heart is far, far, far from him. You've never really asked him to rescue you. If not, please talk to someone. Uh, I'll lead us in prayer. You can talk to the prayer team when they come up here in just a few moments. Uh, you can talk to someone else you know here who loves Jesus. And you can turn your life over to him to be sure that when your heart stops, you'll be with him forever. To fully submit to him and call on him to rescue you. Nothing and no one can compare to Jesus. This image of him is jaw-dropping, is it not? It goes on in Revelation 1, 19 through 20, wrapping up here. It says, write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We see an identical description in the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter four. These seven lampstands, again, represent the seven churches that we've already said are both literal and figurative. In Zechariah's time, God's people were in exile and the temple needed to be rebuilt because that's the place where God dwelled among his people. But now Jesus dwells in a living temple. That is his people, the church. And we see here that Jesus will use the church as a lamp to illuminate the gospel in our dark world that desperately needs to hear this message. Some brief takeaways here. Jesus is among us. Nothing we faced or will ever endure can destroy us with this Savior and King among us. So that means we can share him, we can obey him because he's with us. Number two, we belong to Jesus. In context, these saints faced horrendous trials beyond what we will ever likely endure. 
They were required by law to bow down and worship to the Roman emperor who was believed to be divine. The emperor was thought to possess his, his subjects, but not so with the believers. They belong to a greater king who will not be defeated and who will ultimately rescue and protect his subjects. So practically, they were to bow to but one king regardless of the cost. So we are to bow to one king. And it's not wealth, success, sex, education, romance, politics, safety, security, health, or any other person or objects that we're tempted to trust. Finally, our response, like John to this book and in general, is to fall down and worship. As I said, this is what separates Christian, Christianity from other religions. We're not about sin management, but we're about giving up and saying, Jesus, I need you, I trust you, I surrender to you. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great promise from Christ? Just worship me. Just worship. You don't have to do it. Just worship me. And as you look to my glory, as my face radiates on your broken soul, you'll discover life and change and healing. Amen? Let's pray. And again, uh, if anyone would like to be uh, baptized, you can do so tonight. Okay? And our prayer team will come up here. And just, you can talk to Brandon or me once again. We can even baptize you after the service is over. The prayer team is going to be up here ready to pray with you. And let me pray, and, and let me say uh, quickly here, if you are not sure, absolutely sure, that you know Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer along with me. Pray with me, please. Just agree along with me in your own mind. Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I've gone my own way and I've tried to live life by my own standards and for my own glory. I want to turn from that life because of your pull right now. I want to respond to you pulling me towards yourself. I thank you for this grace. I thank you for your cross that you were broken and bruised and died to take the penalty that I deserve for sin, which is death and separation from God for all eternity, that you suffered in my place, that you became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God, so that I might experience your resurrection, Lord, so I receive your resurrection as well, that I have new life, abundant life now that you've paid for my sin. And Lord, I now want to walk in this abundant life, this resurrected life, to continually be turning from sin. And I receive your sanctification, making me more like yourself as I walk in this resurrected life by the power of your spirit. Lord Jesus, I don't have all the answers now, but I call out for your rescue. And I thank you for your rescue. And I thank you for giving me the power and the desire to walk out this life. It's in your name, Jesus said, I pray, amen.